0: Let's pray together. Father, you have ordained the sun and the moon and the stars. You are Lord of the universe. And Father, we, we ought to, as your creation, submit at all times to your will and to your good pleasure. But Father, we freely admit this morning that we have utterly failed and that Christ is our only hope. So Father, we rejoice in our salvation. We re- rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, I pray that you would cause our hearts to, to love you to a greater degree as we look into your word, that you have indeed changed us, made us new creatures in Christ so that we may obey you, Father. May we be both hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Luke chapter 6 this morning. We are in the last paragraph of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. He began the sermon with a warning and a blessing, and he ends this sermon with a warning. In the beginning, he gave these blessings and these woes It really served as a warning that You might think that the rich are the ones that are inherently blessed by God, but they shall be poor, and the poor shall inherit the kingdom of God. You may think that it's those who are laughing and rejoicing in this world that have been the recipients of God's grace and kindness, yet they will mourn and weep, and those who mourn and weep today are the recipient of God's blessing. In our passage this morning then, the end of the sermon, Jesus gives us another warning against deceiving ourselves by being a hearer only, by hearing the commands of Christ, yet not doing them, not obeying them. If you remember, after Jesus selected the twelve disciples, He's come down off the mountain. He's addressing this crowd that's made up of the disciples, the twelve men who were chosen specifically to be the disciples. There are other faithful followers of Jesus in this crowd. And then there's a whole group of people that are what we might call curious about Jesus. They've come out to hear His message. They've come out to be healed of their diseases and to have the demons cast out. But they're curious. They don't have their minds made up about Jesus. And then there are others, undoubtedly, that claim to be faithful followers of Jesus, but will demonstrate through their fr- the fruit of their life, through their actions, through their desertion of Christ, that they are not true disciples of Christ. And this isn't unlike a crowd that would gather at any church on any Sunday. You see, this passage isn't just theoretical. This passage is playing out in churches and in homes every day and every week. Many, praise the Lord, by God's grace are hearing the words of Christ and they are doing the words of Christ. They are putting them into practice. Many are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, there are those who might hear physically the words of Christ but fail to obey, fail to do them and thereby betray their profession by not following uh, in that, in their practice. So Jesus introduces us to the main point of this paragraph with his question there in verse 46. Why do you call me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what i tell you there's a contrast jesus is making between someone's lips and someone's life a contrast between someone's profession and someone's practice the repetition of lord lord there it's it's this emotive appeal calling jesus by the right title And so Jesus is saying, why do you address me correctly, even with felt emotion, yet you do not follow my commands? What good is it to assign to me the title Lord, but then live life as if Jesus is nothing more than a peer? So then we might we might conclude then that emotions are not the final indicator of my standing in status with God. It is possible to be moved by Christian songs and and, and corporate worship and yet to remain unconverted, to remain unreconciled to God through Christ. It's not even my right theology that saves It's not even my right doctrine. It's not my ability to rehearse truths that are the final indicator of my status and standing with the Lord. Now don't don't misunderstand. The profession matters. The the confession of Jesus as Lord matters. Matters. We must begin there. We must begin with the right understanding of who Christ is and a correct theology of what He has accomplished for us on our behalf through the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. So Jesus isn't undermining the importance of professing Christ as Lord. The point is that profession that isn't backed up by practice is inconsequential. It's unsubstantial. It lacks substance. Because you're indicating, or I'm indicating, if that's me, with our lives, that we don't truly believe what we profess to believe. Now imagine you're in the passenger seat, and your friend is in the driver's seat, and you pass a sign on the side of the road that says, Caution, road out ahead, the bridge is out and your friend just keeps right on driving, and you say, did you see that sign? Yeah, I saw the sign. Well, do you believe the sign? Yeah, I believe the sign. Yet he just keeps on driving and driving. You'd say, I'm not convinced that you believe the sign. Because if you, if you believe the sign, and, you, and you, don't have a, uh, you don't have a desire to fly off this bridge, if, if that's you, then you would, you would obey the sign. You would turn around, you would stop, the car, you would begin to question whether your friend truly believes in that moment. Similarly, Jesus, Jesus' question here assumes this important truth. What we truly believe is backed up, not in what we say, but how we live. He's saying that, that, it's, that it's possible to profess Christ as Lord, but not to obey Him and to submit to So no no emotional high, no religious experience, no religious language even can hide this private devotion, or lack thereof, to the Lord Jesus Christ. In a similar passage in Matthew, probably the passage that you're even more familiar with in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells these false professors to depart from him. Now they would say, Jesus, what do you you mean? I'm calling you Lord, Lord. We've made these prophecies in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We have healed and, and, and worked these signs and wonders in your name. What do you mean? Depart. Well, what does Jesus say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Despite these powerful demonstrations the real evidence of a true repentant person is a departure from iniquity. A repentance. We saw last week that the good tree brings forth good fruit. So no, this is, this is certainly not perfection. We're not, not even close. It's not even what we hope to be. Not even close to what we will be when we see Christ. We shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. But, but warts and all, when a person comes to know Christ through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the, the understanding of the gospel and repentance and faith, there's a fundamental change that happens towards Christ. And if our disposition towards Christ changes, then fundamentally our disposition towards sin changes. Why? Because Christ is indeed Lord. That's what he says here. You should obey me because I am Lord. Notice the authority with which Jesus speaks. Why do you not do what I tell you? Now that is an authoritative question. A parent might say that to a child, why are you not doing what I'm telling you to do? A boss might say that to an employee, a police officer might say that to someone who is resisting arrest, why aren't you doing what I'm telling you to do? A parent, a boss, a police officer might say those things because they've been given a level of authority. They have some authority over this small amount of people, you know, a parent only has authority over their own children. Yet Jesus' claim here is to be able to tell all of us what to do and how to live, and we should obey. He is claiming to have all authority over life. He has this right in every sphere because of who He is. He is the eternal Son. He is the second person of the Trinity, the image of the invisible God. The, the, the creator of all that is. For from him and through him and to him are all things. By him all things were created. By him all things are created, are sustained in this universe. In Colossians 1. We sang about it in that last song. When he speaks, creation obeys. When he tells an angel to go here, the angel goes there. His words carry weight. His words carry divine authority. So Jesus asks, why do you call me Lord, yet not do what I say? When I tell this star to shine, Or when I tell this star to die, it it, it dies. And when I tell this mountain to rise up, the mountain rises up. And when I tell this valley to sink down, that valley sinks down. When I tell this ocean, it can only come this far. That ocean only goes this far. The ocean obeys the command of Christ. Yet, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you won't obey? Jesus possesses divine authority as God in the flesh. His words, then, are not to be taken lightly. They aren't a suggestion. They're not to be dismissed as irrelevant. They're not to, for me to pick and choose which words I, I think Jesus really said, or which words I, I actually prefer, and which words Jesus has actually kind of fit the culture that I'm living in. And it, no, His words, all of them carry divine weight and divine authority. They, they're not to be treated with disdain or manipulated to make them mean something that Jesus never meant. Jesus is Lord. We ought to obey, then, Jesus' instruction. And not just the ones that come easy to us. Not just the ones that we like to sort of pick and choose and, and major on, but there's this whole list of things that Jesus said over here, but, hey, at least I'm doing really good over here. In fact, we've seen some of those things that are, that are hard for us to obey. We've been challenged with these commands of Christ that are difficult even in this sermon that we've taken five or six weeks to walk through. Commands like love your enemy. Commands like pray for the one who abuses you. Commands to suffer persecution well for the sake of Christ. Commands to not condemn with a judgmentalism towards others. Commands to Consider our own sin before we seek to take the speck out of someone else's eye. So for those who are in Christ this morning, we, we seek to obey His word, whether it's the preached word, whether it's shared by a friend, whether you read something in your daily Bible reading, we, we ought to obey Christ, Jesus' is Lord, and therefore worthy of our obedience. Yet there are those, there are many, Jesus would say, who are making a correct profession but deny it in practice. And that's the warning. One author said it this way. Open sin and avowed unbelief no doubt slay their thousands. But profession without practice slays its ten thousands. Open sin and avowed unbelief slays its thousands, but profession without practice slays its tens tens of thousands. You see, submission to Christ, it's a non-negotiable. You know, we've joked about Jesus not being like Burger King, have it your way. I'll take a side of salvation with no lordship, please. We're not offered that choice. There's no such thing then as Christ as Savior and not as Lord. There's no such thing as Christ as Savior and not as Lord. I was listening to a missionary lady's testimony one time in a church, and she was saying that, you know, I, I was saved when I made this profession as a young child, but, you know, my life never changed, and I went off to college and I, I was partying and in and, and rebellion and never cared a thing in the world about what. Jesus thought, I never cared a thing about obeying the Lord. And she said, and then I opened up the book of Philippians and I read the whole book of Philippians. And she said, after that moment, I had a desire to love and to please God. I had a desire to serve Him. I gave my life to be a missionary. And she, she said, this is the moment that I rededicated myself to the Lord. And I thought, you know, I'm not really in the business. I don't really care to like nail down the moment that someone got saved. But I'm thinking, just from what I'm hearing, it sounds like to me that that might have been the moment. That was probably the moment that you didn't rededicate yourself. That's not really a biblical category. You were made alive by the Spirit of God. You were given a new nature so that this good tree now then can bear good fruit. He the Spirit called you to Christ, and you became a new creature in Christ. And that explains, all of a sudden, these new desires. There's no such thing as Christ as Savior without Christ as Lord. And so Jesus begins this section with, with a rebuke, with a warning. It's identifying a problem, a potential problem. But with so many warnings in Scripture, there's an implied command to turn to Christ. The warnings are meant to provoke a a turning, a a repentance. I was teaching the ten to twelve year olds last week, and the story of Jonah came up, and you know we were talking about when Jonah went. His message was, "In forty days, you're going to be destroyed." That's what he preached. And they they heard the warning, and they turned to God. And they didn't even know. They said, hey, maybe, perhaps, God will relent from his wrath if we turn to him in repentance. Same here with this warning. There's an implied command to turn to Christ. There's hope. There's a better way than being a professor that doesn't have the practice. Look in verses 47 and 48. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and the stream broke against it, that house, uh, and, and could not shake it because it had been well built." As Jesus had done in the beginning with these blessings and these woes, he divides his audience and and by application divides the entire world into these two groups of people, those who hear and obey Christ and those who don't. And before Jesus gets into this illustration, he describes the exact opposite of the person in verse 47. There's a person in verse forty-seven who who calls Jesus Lord but doesn't obey. In verse forty-eight, there's those who are coming to Christ, who are hearing His commands and are doing what He tells them to do. And we got to get that. We got to get that order right: coming, hearing, and and doing. We've got to get that order right, or we get we get the story of the Bible backwards. We get Christianity backwards. These are. Uh, present tense participles here, the one who is coming to me, who is hearing me, and is doing what I say. This is the picture of the true disciple, the true follower of Christ. First, everyone who comes to me, Jesus often used this language of coming to him, coming to Christ. Christ to refer to becoming a follower of Christ, or we might just say generally to refer to salvation. We think of Matthew 11:28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What kind of rest, Jesus? Well, rest for your souls, he says. In John 5:40, Jesus is rebuking the Jewish scholars because they searched the Scriptures looking for eternal life, but they miss that He is eternal life. And He says to them, "Yet you refuse to come to Me, that you may have life. You refuse to come to Me, and that you may have life." In John chapter six, Jesus says, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger." And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, what are we doing here with coming to Christ? Well, well, notice in John 6 the parallelism. He is the bread of life. Whoever comes shall not hunger, whoever believes shall never thirst. To come to Jesus is to believe in Him. It is to believe that He has come to do what the book of Luke has been arguing from the beginning, that He has come to do to save sinners from the consequences of their sin through His perfect obedience and His sacrificial death and resurrection. This is where hearing and doing begins. We hear the message of the gospel and we turn from our sin and trust in Christ. Paul talks about obeying the gospel. Well, how do I o- obey the gospel? Well, first I, I hear the gospel and I turn in faith and repentance to Him. And then you, by God's grace and by God's power, we, we grow into being hearers and doers and practicers of God's word. And that's, that's what we're doing this morning. We're reading the Bible, and we're seeking to explain the Bible so that we might obey the Bible. We want to be hearers and doers at Southern Hills. We want to obey the Word of God. We want to be a church that takes the commands of Christ seriously. Not, not, not a people who seeks to wiggle out from them or, or push them as far as we can go or walk this line. We want to submit ourselves, even as a corporate body, to the commands of Christ because we recognize His authority over us as Lord. And Jesus then moves into these illustrations. For the one who has come to Christ and heard and, and responded to the message of the gospel, He is like the one who builds his house on the rock, on the solid ground. You see that in verse 48. The person who hears and obeys the word of Christ is the one who has dug deep through the topsoil and made it down to solid rock so that he might build his foundation on the rock so that it is strong enough to withstand the flood, the house. When the flood came, was not shaken. Now I imagine the wise builder was mocked by those around him for, for digging so deep. I imagine there are others building houses that are going up much faster. Is it really necessary for you to dig down to the rock? My house looks as good as your house. When the houses were built up, they looked the same. You couldn't tell them apart. So many wondered, does it really matter? Does it really matter to get down to the rock? It reminds me of Noah building a boat when nobody had seen a torrential storm or a flood. But Noah, like the wise builders, might say, yes, digging down deep is necessary. Yes, building the ark is necessary because there's a storm coming. There's a storm coming. Now, this flood that comes in verse 48, it can, it, you know, the word flood in the Bible can refer to difficulties in this life. It can refer to the storms of this life. But ultimately, I think here in Luke 6, ultimately refers to the judgment of God. So it might, it, it might be a, a right and proper application for us to say, to, to be built on the rock, you can sustain the storms of life. Psalm 144.7, David pleads, he uses storm, flood this way, Rescue me and deliver me from many waters and from the hand of foreigners. What's this many waters? It's, it's the difficulties of life, it's hardship, it's trial, it's circumstances. And it's true. It's true that adversity has a way of revealing to us our heart and can even reveal to us if our circumstances push us away completely where we desert Christ, it can reveal the nature of our hearts. And some of you are here this morning and you've, you've done the opposite. You've walked through the valley of the shadow of death. You, you've walked through cancer. You've walked through the loss of a loved one. You have suffered at the hands of others. You have begged God to change your circumstances. And for whatever reason, He hasn't. But you've clung to Christ. And and you're here this morning because you love Christ and you, you love God's people. And this should be an incredible assurance to you that you have built your foundation on the rock. The flood can, in Scripture, point to the difficulties of life. But I think ultimately here, Jesus is talking about a future day of God's wrath. The flood in Genesis 6 and 7 is God's judgment on a world who only did evil continually all the time. In Nahum 1, seven, it says, But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness in first samuel twelve twenty five, samuel the prophet says but if you still do wickedly you shall be swept away you shall be swept away both you and your king the flood here is god's fierce wrath unleashed against all ungodliness it's a day in which Jesus said people will hide themselves under the cleft of a rock and they will beg for this rock to fall on them and crush them instead of facing the fury of God's wrath. But this day, this wrath, this judgment, it's, it's inescapable. Unless you're built on the rock. Are you surprised when we understand the imagery behind the flood, that it's God's fierce wrath unleashed against ungodliness, are you surprised that there's a house there that's standing? You ought to be. How does, how does the house stand? Why does this house get to stand the flood of God's wrath? Well, it's, it's in the text because it is built on the rock with a firm foundation. That's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference whether the house stands or falls. You see, Jesus isn't saying that he'll sort of get us started down this road, he'll sort of zap us a little bit, and then we can just keep plugging away, and eventually we are so good that God loves us and we earn our right standing before him, and we will stand at the judgment because Jesus sort of gave me this nudge down the road of righteousness. That would betray the whole message of the book of Luke. The whole message of the book, over and over again, is that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. When we get to Luke 18, eventually, we'll see over and over and over, story after story, that we are completely and utterly helpless before God. So, the ground of my assurance isn't that that I've somehow, you know, can earn my own standing. The ground of my assurance is Christ Himself. He is the rock. And if you are in Christ, or or to use Jesus' language here, if you have built your house on the rock, you will stand in the judgment. You will stand in the judgment. Your obedience to Jesus is evidence that you will stand because it's evidence that you've been made new in Christ. But the ground, the, the, the basis of your standing is the work of Christ. And it's His faithfulness to you. His steadfast love never fails. How can I trust the rock? Well, well His steadfast love never fails. You might say, are there, are there things that God cannot do? Yeah, there are things that God cannot do. He cannot fail those whom He has placed His love on. He keeps all whom the Father has given to Him. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. We have an advocate, John says, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Yeah, there's something God cannot do. He cannot fail His people. He cannot lose them. He cannot allow them to fall in the, ju- the day of judgments. For those in Christ... It is because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It's because of that assurance then that, that I will stay in the judgment, that I, that I want to, I desire to please God. We've been given a new nature. So before we move on then from that verse to the last verse, I want to I remind us then, that as those who are in Christ, let the warning do its work. Let the warning do its work. I believe God uses warnings like this to provoke his people to persevere in obedience to him. And what I mean to say is, you and I can't walk into, in submission to the Lord without building habits in our lives that encourage us to walk in obedience. And I want to just take three kind of big categories of these sort of habits that we should... Build in seeking to obey our Lord Jesus Christ. We have habits concerning the church. The problem with, with habits is, you, you know, you've probably heard the saying, old, old habits die hard. Right. So there's this effort that, that's, that's meant to be in, in our obedience to the Lord. We strive after this obedience because we recognize that old habits die hard. I spent the first probably 14 years of my driving life in a manual transmission truck. And when I got the truck I have now, it's, it's automatic. And it was an embarrassing amount of time till I would get in my truck and not, my left leg would like just reflexively go to press in the clutch. The, the seatbelt broke in my old truck one time. And I'm telling you, two minutes apart, I would say, oh, no, my seatbelt, oh, it's broken. Two minutes later... My mom was like hardcore seatbelt wearer, and so it's ingrained in me. Two minutes later, I'd say, oh, my seatbelt's off. Even though I knew it was broken, it was just this habit in my mind. So we've got to work towards building godly habits, even habits concerning the church. I would encourage you, insofar as you are able, that you build your schedule, build your life even around the gathering of God's people, don't allow Sunday morning to be the thing that you try to fit in if everything else comes together that week. Make the gathering of God's people the excuse for missing everything else. We, we need to build, build habits concerning the church. We need to build habits concerning God's Word. We can work at becoming a good sermon listener. Listener. To understand what's being said and why it's being said according to the text. And you say, Well, Kyle, you can help me with that. I, I will do my best. <laughs> I will try to explain everything to the best of my ability. But I would encourage you take notes if that helps you. Some of you, it, it distracts you. For a lot of you, it might be helpful to jot down the big idea or what's going on. You can change the way you're taking notes. If that little sheet that I print out every day just distracts you and you're wondering when in the world is going to get to chapter point number three, it's almost time to leave. Well, you can change the way you take notes. Bring your own notebook and keep your own notes if that's helpful for you. Become a good sermon listener. Indulge yourself in your own time in the reading of God's word. Read it. Soak in the Bible. If this is the time of year where you recognize, man, I am getting bogged down, I'm trying to read through the Bible, and I'm I'm trying to get through the Pentateuch, and it's just slowing me down, well, get to Psalm 119 and read it. Read the first eight verses at least. And then read the next date and see the the glory and the beauty of the Word of God and and ask God, Lord, incline my heart. That's That's a prayer the psalmist prays. Incline my heart, turn my heart, bend me back, Lord, to your Word. Habits concerning church, habits concerning the Bible, habits concerning prayer. I would encourage you to start somewhere. Start somewhere. Some of us hear stories about a great Christian like George Mueller who prayed four hours a day, and we get this, this rush of enthusiasm and say, you know what, I'll start with three hours a day and see what happens. Well, I can tell you what's going to happen. <laughs> it, it won't end well for you. Start somewhere. It's like when I start to exercise. I'm, I'm running for, I kill myself, and then I'm like, I'm never doing that again. You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to put prayer on my calendar. I don't want to put it on my to-do list because I don't want it to become something that I just check off. I would encourage you to actually put it on your calendar if that helps you, to put it on your to-do list. You can pray and ask God to protect your heart from it becoming something you check off, but until you build daily godly habits, put it on there. Let it remind you that you need to run to the Lord in prayer. We can't walk, we can't walk in consistent obedience to the Lord without building our life around God's people, God's word, and God's provision of prayer. In other words, if you want to obey Jesus, if you hear the warning and it spurs you on to obey Christ to a greater degree, put yourself in the way of the things that God promised to use to make you like Jesus, His church, His word, and Prayer. The hearer and the doer is is built on the rock. But then Jesus goes on in point number three to say, To hear the words and not obey them is as foolish as building a house without a foundation. That's in verse 49. The house built on any other foundation falls in the flood. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground. Without a foundation, when the stream broke against it, immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. I think the, the emphasis of Jesus' illustration actually falls in verse 49. He started out by saying, "Why do you call me Lord Lord, and do not do what I say?" Now he illustrates for us the, the outcome and the, really the nature of the person who hears and does not obey. Notice the difference in verse 49 from verse 47. This person does not come to Christ. I think that's on purpose, based on what we were saying earlier about what it means to come to Christ. A reference to becoming a follower of Christ. He does hear the words of Jesus do fall on his ears, but he does not do them. Now, let me, let me remind you and encourage you one more time, this is not talking about those who sincerely love God and yet wrestle with, with the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's not talking about those who wrestle with sin This is the person who professes Christ but consistently, as a way of life, prefers and chooses their sin over the lordship of Christ. That person, the hearer only, is deceived. He or she is deluded into thinking that he is right with God yet is storing up wrath for himself. Ultimately, This person, the hearer only, has a house that's built on a different foundation. He hasn't dug deep down to the rock. And he looks around, he sees the man digging deep and says, I know a better way, I know a more efficient way, I know a way that costs a lot less, I will just build my house right here from the ground up. And his house may have went up quickly, It might have looked like the other house that was actually built on the rock, but there's something terribly deficient about the house. There's something terribly deficient. The foundation is unable to stand, and therefore the entire house is headed for an incredible fall. I worked for a construction company when I was in in college. Not that I have any construction skills. In fact, that's why they wanted me. They could pay me eight bucks an hour. They didn't have to pay me like a skilled laborer. But sometimes we would build these kind of block retaining walls. And you could build it, you could build it without really digging down and, and getting a firm foundation there. But in a matter of months, the ground would settle. And all of a sudden, this beautiful brick or, or block wall that you build all of a sudden is now out of whack. What you had to do was dig this trench, fill it with gravel... Pack it down as hard as you could so that this wall sat on a firm foundation lest it fall in a matter of time. To build on the ground then is is foolishness. It's not to be a hearer and a doer. It's to be a hearer only. To build on the ground is to rely on anything other than Christ. The persistent lack of of obedience to the Lord, consistent, persistent preference to sin over Christ, is the sure evidence that you haven't come to Christ and therefore have rejected Him as Lord. You see, there is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. Every house is built on something. We are either relying on Christ or we've built our house on the ground. It reminds me of that great line in the Count of Monte Cristo, when uh, the protagonist, Dantes, he suffered a lot of injustice. He's been thrown in prison wrongfully, and he meets this old man who's a priest, and he, he tells the old man, God has faded from my heart. And the priest says, What has replaced him? What has replaced him? We are all worshiping something. We have relied on something to endure this flood that is coming. And the illustration says the same storm hits this house. The flood water breaks the banks of the river and it slams against the house. And the idea in the text is this immediate fall. Boom, it it, it has collapsed. There's this immediacy to the flood and this immediacy to the fall of the house. You see, we can't schedule calamity. We don't put flood on our calendar. There's not even a tornado siren here. There's no flash flood notification on your iPhone. There's no time to board up the windows when it comes to this flood. You have to be prepared before the flood comes. Immediately the house fell. And the text says, The ruin of the house was great. With a great thud, the house collapses to the ground in a mound of useless rubble. A once beautiful house reduced to nothing. Again, this is the warning of God's impending judgment. And the warning is, don't build your house on the ground. Don't build your house on that. Church attendance won't hide you from the flood. Self-righteousness will not hide you from the flood. Legalism cannot rescue you out of the floodwaters. Moralism will not be the foundation that you need. Even addressing Jesus as Lord is insufficient if it's not followed by practice. As we saw in the beginning of the sermon, financial security and riches will not save you and are not the guarantee that you are right with God. Even an extraordinary gifting grants you no standing on the day of judgment. I was reading this book about the sink, sinking of the USS Indianapolis. This guy named Edgar Harrell, who became a Christian, was right before the war, was writing of being on that boat. The boat was torpedoed by a, um, by a torpedo. I guess that's what torpedoes stuff. And he wrote this of others. He, he's been in the water four days, and people are beginning they, they begin to be so dehydrated that they drink the salt water, and they even become more dehydrated. And he says this, Suffering from dehydration and saltwater poisoning, some of the men began hallucinating. One young man insisting that the the scuttlebutt is open, if you've been in the Navy, you might know, that's Navy talk for access to the drinking fountain aboard the ship. Frantically, this man who, who sees a drinking fountain underneath the water, frantically, he stuck his face in the water and pointed down to his fantasy. No reasoning to the contrary would dissuade him. He was utterly convinced of his salvation. I can still see him slowly disappearing in the depths of the Pacific as he swam after, the, after a figment of his imagination. That's what relying on church attendance and moralism and financial security and gifting to figment They promise safety from the flood. They promise a firm foundation. They promise salvation and deliverance when we stand before the Lord, but they're they're nothing but a figment. And we chase those things. We swim after them to our own peril. Again, there's an implied call. Turn. Turn away from those things. It's not too late. If if this is you and and you recognize that I have had a profession but no practice. I want to encourage you. God has been patient with you this morning. He has been gracious with you, giving you a chance again today to turn and to repent. Come to Christ. Come to Christ believing that He is Lord, trusting that He died in the place of sinners like you and I. Fall before Him, confessing your sin. Hear the words of the gospel and obey Christ. See, Simeon prophesied earlier in the book of Luke that Jesus will be the cause of the fall and rising of many in Israel. John the Baptist warned about the winnowing fork of Jesus. See, Jesus marks a crossroad. If you truly bow before me as Lord, I will gather you in like wheat. If you refuse to bow, you are burned up like the chaff. We saw it in Psalm 73 that Dan read earlier. Asaph, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Same language. Swept away by God's wrath. You see, you can fake it till you make it at your job. You can pretend you know what you're doing, but Jesus warns us here, you cannot fake it with him. He knows every heart. He hears every word uttered in secret. He sees every moment. When we think we're alone, where shall I run, we ask? Where shall I hide? One theologian wrote this. When you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. Even in our room, you fear some witness from another quarter. You retire into your heart There you meditate. I've escaped everyone. Baving says this, He is more inward than your heart. Wherever therefore you shall have fled, there God is. From yourself, whither will you flee? If God is with you wherever you go, you can't run from yourself. Will you not follow yourself wherever you shall flee? But since there is one more inward even than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from God Angry, but to God reconciled. There is no place at all whither you may flee. Will you flee from Him? Flee to Him. If you want to flee from God's wrath, you flee to Him. You flee to Christ. God Himself, Jesus Christ the righteous, is the only re- refuge from the storm. He's the only refuge from God's fury, and that's what makes the gospel such a profo- profound message. That Jesus took the storm of God's wrath. He took the flood on the cross in Himself. He took the full fury of God's wrath against sin. As the flood broke out over the river and it's bearing down on us, Jesus steps in our place and absorbs all of it in Himself. He took the blow. He took on Himself the penalty so that you and I might be given the gift of righteousness. This is our foundation. Upon this and, and, and this alone can we stand in the flood. Upon this we can rest. We can rest. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. It is so beyond what we could come up with. It is so beyond human wisdom. It is so beyond our abilities. Father, we pray that you would open eyes to see the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would comfort those this morning who are truly in Christ, that you would give them uh, an assurance that their obedience is not the ground of their salvation, but it is evidence of their salvation. May you be pleased and glorified with our response to your word in Jesus' name.